0: Hello there, and welcome to episode ninety-one of Right Where You're Sitting Now. This week's a bit of a strange one. Uh, it does feature a co-host, um, but the episode was actually recorded—I can't even remember now—a while ago. This was originally going to be episode eighty-one, and then I think we kind of had a pile-up of stuff, like episodes. So for whatever reason, this episode actually never ended up getting released. Um, I've got no idea why, because <laughs> uh, it's a because it's a really good one. But anyway, uh, this week's episode is with Christopher McIntosh. Uh, He's a writer, he's been around for a long time, writing on all sorts of esoteric topics. As you'll hear in the episode, Mark is rather taken with his book on Eliphas Levi, or Livy, or Levi, or no one knows how to say that surname, I swear. It's one of those names, Eliphas Levi, is what I've always called him. But you never know. So yeah, his book Occult Russia came out a while ago now. It's actually a very good book. It looks at the kind of esoteric traditions in Russia. Um, It kind of explores the occurrence of mysticism, myth, magic and the spiritual to which the Russian soul has always been attuned. Can you tell I just read that off a uh, description? But yeah, it sort of looks at kind of kind of earlier magical traditions and then looks at how that's affected the magical traditions in Russia in the post-Soviet era. So it's a really interesting know analysis and quite timely but yes obviously as it's just me in the intro you know what that means no outro so so don't forget to join us on youtube and subscribe where you can see the video version of this interview without the intro so you audio listeners you only get you're the only ones that get this intro so i'm not sure if that's a a blessing or a curse but yeah do join us in other places online you know at sitting now on instagram youtube twitter uh, at city now official on TikTok, where I occasionally post videos, and I remember it's a strange platform, but a very I don't really understand it. I'm still sort of trying to get my head around it a bit, but uh, we've had some a couple of well, I don't know if they're successful, it's hard to tell what's successful on TikTok like millions and millions of successful on TikTok, but we have had a couple of over 1,000 bangers. <laughs> so we'll be back to our normal programming next week. We have Nicholas Shrek coming on and we've, we're doing a kind of conversation about the left-hand path and conspiracy theory which should be pretty interesting we both have some pretty strong views on that top on those topics i should say and uh, anyway let's get over to christopher McIntosh and discussing magic in russia and we will see you next week uh, We're joined today by author um, Christopher McIntosh, uh, author of the excellent new book, Mm -hmm. Uh, Occult Russia, which I have here in my hands. Um, Thanks for coming on
1: the show, Christopher. How have you been? Very well, thanks. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, no, it's a privilege.
2: And um, you've written so many things over the years as well. I mean, I'm I'm very mindful of the the LFS Levy uh, biography, which is an excellent book. Mm. And um, I'm going to pay you a a huge compliment here because I I read it a very long time, about 20 years ago, and it's older than that. It's 1972, was it published in 1972, that book?
1: 72, yes.
2: Yeah. And um, I remember Hmm. reading it and and, um, assuming, and I mean this as a compliment, assuming that... um, because it was such a it seemed so scholarly and what well, it was scholarly and, and of a mature sort of mm-hmm. nature that the, the person who wrote that must have been much older <laughs> and 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 presumably must no. have passed away but i um, but so you know and it's a, and it's a really overlooked book uh a character and you've you really brought that to life for me so i i owe you a real, a real debt mm-hmm. there how old if you don't mind me asking you don't have to no, answer if you don't want to uh, how old were you in when you wrote that uh, the book on levy
1: Oh, I was um, approaching thirty.
2: Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, but still, it's. Mm. It, I, I thought it was a man much, much more, you know, mature because it was so well written and uh, thoughtfully presented. Yeah, so, mm. uh, yeah. And uh, mm. I think well, Levy is a, is a very influential. Mm. You know, people. He's a bit sort of underrated, I think, too, a bit too much these days. And I think his influence is often overlooked. And if you and you read those books, you realize mm. how much he's he's there he's there for us it's excellent also you know like, yes, idea, like his idea of the um his concept of the astral life always said that in some ways he anticipated you know the ideas of the unconscious like the freudian ideas of the conscious almost
1: yes yes that was a very seminal concept the astral light yeah yeah yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. so um, what brought you to
0: to russia and the occult in russia
1: Well, previous to this book, I wrote another book called Beyond the North Wind, which deals with the mystique of the North. And part of that mystique is the notion of Hyperborea, Hyperborea, the fabled land in the North. Hyperborea, meaning the land beyond the North Wind. Boreas being the north wind. So this was thought of as um, a sort of never-never land in the far north, somewhere in the polar region, before the polar region got covered by ice, or, or perhaps in some sort of freak temperate zone in the middle of the ice, where this precursor civilization existed. And this idea took root in Russia very strongly. Um, I discovered this while while writing the book Beyond the North Wind. And uh, that led me on to other traditions in Russia that I found very interesting. And as I knew the Russian language, I, I began to look into it more deeply and decided to write this book. So that's how it came about.
0: One thing that struck me early in the book, you speak about, um, and I've I've sort of observed this myself as well, it, it, you, you speak about how war and kind of social decline kind of tends to inspire a new wave of, of art and kind of uh, like new art movements. Um, and that's, that certainly seems to be the case in Russia.
1: Yes. That's, that's true. Well, I think there are certain periods when there are powerful currents flowing in, you could say, the collective mind of the age. And these manifest themselves in various various ways, in various kinds of social unrest, um, upheaval, before they erupt, erupt into some great, um, some great upheaval. Um, these same currents can also drive, uh, and, uh, you had this, for example, in, in Austria, in, in Vienna, in the last decades of the Habsburg empire, which was a period of great creativity. Um, you had it also in, um, Germany towards the end of the Weimar Republic. And you also you also had it in this period in Russia before the revolution, which was a tr- tremendously creative period, um, which is often called the Silver Age, the Silver Age, which was cut off, but basically by the revolution. Although, although to some extent it continued after the revolution, but um, was a, a more, more or less. Um, Disappeared by the time Stalin came along.
0: Yeah, interesting. So, um, well, another thing I noticed as well throughout the book is that the Russians mm-hmm. seem kind of preoccupied with, uh, for use of a better term, kind of new eons or new, new, new phases. Um, it, it, does that make any sense? It, they sort of seem to really, each sort of uh, paganistic group always seems to have this kind of. Thing in the future that it, it's it's sort of leaning towards, and um, I noticed that throughout the book, it seems to all the different groups all seem yeah. to have this kind of leaning. Do you think this is a a Russian predicament, or is
1: this a? I think it. Is, I think it is. I think it probably has something to do with the history, with the religious history of Russia. Um, Russia basically converted to Orthodox Christianity in. The 10th century uh, under prince vladimir and at that time they looked towards constantinople which was the spiritual center of orthodoxy well then then what happened was that constantinople was overrun by the turks and constant constantinople ceased to have that role and What happened was that the the then Tsar, um, Ivan III, who was married to a niece of the Byzantine emperor, decided, I think, partly under the influence of of his wife, who who appears to have been a, a very forceful woman, to declare that Muscovy had become, had taken over the role of Constantinople and had become, as, as they called it, the third Rome. So the, the first Rome being the Rome on the Tiber, the second being Constantinople, and the third being Russia or Mus- Muscovy. So they, they already had this this idea of a, of a threefold process, process going on in history. And this, uh, this also is connected with the with the notion of the Antichrist, that um, there was going to come a, a time when the the Antichrist would would come and, and introduce a reign of evil, which which would then and then a savior would come and get rid of the Antichrist and introduce a new Golden Age, well, there have been certain periods in Russian history when it appeared that the the, anti, the Antichrist had come. For example, there was a split in the Orthodox Church in the 17th century when a, a group, the split was over some reforms that had taken place in the Church. Uh, one was that um, in, instead of doing the, the sign of the cross with two fingers to uh, symbolize the dual nature of Christ, that it would henceforth be done with three fingers. Well, to, today we would think of that as, a, as a, a rather minor point, but to them it was very important. And so this, this group of, uh, schematic group broke away and they called themselves the old believers thousands and thousands of them and they considered that the mainstream of the orthodox church was was under the antichrist and you had this theme of the antichrist coming in again under communism there were many many people who thought that stalin was the antichrist so this 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 kind of millenarian thinking is is very much sort of rooted in the the, the russian mentality and it, it's still there to, to to a great extent
2: yeah and then there's those those heretical you, you mentioned it in the book, uh, mr mackintosh uh, the um the, the those heretical notions uh they sort of inherited as well of like uh, the the age of the um the, the holy spirit isn't the age of the father and mother uh, the where does it go again? That's but, right. Yes, I've come, I'm getting it modeled. You're going to have to remind me. But no, uh, it it
1: it, it, go, it goes back to the Italian mystic Giorgio Fiore, yeah. the med, medieval Italian mystic who put forward the idea that history proceeds in three ages. First, first comes the age of the father, which is the is the age of law, and then comes the age of the sun, which is the, the age of the gospel, and then finally the age of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be a, a reign of peace and love and, and happiness. So, um, yeah, this was this was also very strong in, in Russia, and um, it also ties in with what they called the the woman clothed with the sun. This is this is something that goes back to the Book of Revelation, where there's mention of a woman clothed with the sun who's going to give birth to a saviour. But there's a, a seven-headed dragon who's who has come and is threatening to devour the, the saviour. But the archangel Michael comes and conquers the dragon. Archangel Michael is, is another very important symbol in Russia. You, you see it all over the place on coats of arms and, and so on. So, and this woman clothed with the sun, became a very important symbol in Russia. And she crops up all over the place again and again in different forms. And she crops up, for example, during the Second World War, when Stalin realized that the communist ideology was not enough to mobilize the country against the Germans. And... So he he tried to stir up the patriotic spirit, and one of the ways he did it was introducing the figure of Mother Russia, um, Mother Homeland, Mat Rodina, as she she's called, and everywhere there, there appeared posters of a um, a radiant, strong, radiant woman brandishing a sword, and with the the slogan mother homeland calls so this this is another another version really of this woman clothed with the sun it's it's, it's one of those things that i call egregores mm-hmm. of, of which there are quite a number and egre, the, an egregore being a collective thought form created by many people focusing on the same ideas and symbols and having the same thoughts
0: yeah, we did a interesting interview with um, Mark Stavish about egregores. He he wrote a book called egregores. Oh yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And we, oh we, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, yes.
2: Also, when I was reading the book, I I, I immediately recognised that that you know very dramatic image of the woman. Uh, brandishing the sword, but I never made, didn't really uh, know what it was, so <laughs> I didn't realize that it was Mother uh, yes, Russia. Yes. Rod, rod, is it Rodnia? Is that mm. would you say? And Rod means like Rodina, it, Rodina, and then and Rod means like root, or it means uh, uh yeah, yes. Russian, yeah, it like uh, it's an inter- it's, yeah. a,
1: it's, a, it's an interesting word because the word Rod, yes, as you say, it's cognate with root, and um Rod is also the name of the supreme creator in the the Russian uh, pre Christian pagan tradition. Rod is, he's the sort of the source, the the source of everything, the source from which the whole universe flows, basically. Rod. And the, the word Rod appears in many other forms. For example, the, the word for parents in russia is rod italy, rod italy. and as uh, yes and and um, as you say in the word rodina and um in various other contexts so so the 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 concept of the rod is is something very very deep rooted in in the language itself
0: yeah there were a few uh quite a few examples means, of egg, egg, oh sorry go yeah. on
1: <laughs> well i was, I was just going to say another another example is the word um pre-roda, which means nature "Preroda," which means sort, sort of the the primal root
0: mm. yeah I was, uh, as i was saying a second ago there's um quite a few examples of egregores when you in the book quite uh, near the start and I was wondering if we could have a look at some of them. One yeah. that one that um, introduced me um, interested me rather was the the warrior hero. I thought was interesting, um, and also the holy. Oh yes, there is the holy fool, and there is a few others. So maybe we could have a, you know, you, you could introduce some of these egregores to us.
1: Yeah, um, well, the yeah one of them as as you say is the the warrior hero. Um, this this is this is a powerful. This is this, of course it's not confer, confined to Russia because it does crop up in other countries, but it's um, it's a it's a, it's a, um, a sort of it's, it's an, an egregore a kind of archetype which gets acted out by by actual historical figures, for for example, by Alexander Nievsky, Prince Alexander Nevsky who. Fought against the, the Teutonic Knights when they invaded Russia in the 15th century, and this the, the figure of Ale- Alexander Nevsky was invoked during the Second World War. Um, in the the film by Sergei Eisenstein about Alexander Nevsky. Um, so that's another another example of of an egregore mm. yeah uh, what what others are the well the um the, the concept of the the never never land the the, the faraway place paradisical place inaccessible except to those who are worthy to to find it and um Uh, An example of that is in Russian tradition Bielavodje, the land of the white waters. This this is again connected with the the old believers because uh, around the the early 19th century reports began to circulate of a place where the thousands of old believers had taken refuge somewhere somewhere in the Far East. And um, they called it Bielovodje, and uh, men, many people tried to find it, but it, it really—I I think it was—it was basically a legendary place. And um, this this legend of, of Bielavodje, the, the subject of Bielovodje, has been taken up by artists. So there are paintings, fantastic paintings of of this imaginary place, and there's even a TV series called Bielavodje, where people where it's, it's kind of a parallel universe where people f- disappear through certain portals into this into this world of Bielovodie. Rather like in in those novels by Philip Pullman, where there's portals that portals in certain places where people disappear into a sort of parallel world. Okay. So that would be another example
2: a bit like uh, coming back to the hyperborea you know the that the you know that's like, the ultimate yeah. end of the of the world really isn't it and uh, hyper you know literally hyperborea beyond beyond boreas the the cave where mm. he's supposed to have lived yeah. i think there was there's a legend also that he um there were uh, griffins and cyclopses who sort of constantly fought over the gold or something in that very fantastical kind of image and also, uh, Hyperborea oh, yes. had a big influence on the Theosophists, didn't they? You know, the the, the ideas around land yeah, right. yes. and the Theosophists. I think the Theosophists had this idea. It was like a sort of paradise that, get, that draws on Greek things as well. And they had these, yes. in, I am going to say, strange ideas. Well, the, anyways, they had these ideas about the, the the original Hyperboreans being like some kind of um, sort of perfect perfect beings, like hermaphrodite-like beings or something and that the, the hyperboreans are supposed to be in, you know a race that lived for a thousand years and were constantly happy and so there was like that kind of uh,
1: bef- like
2: eden before the fall
1: i suppose yes well th- there are many different versions of the Hy- hyperborean legend the, the, the russians have cottoned onto it in in a big way and at one point, there was there was even a Russian admiral who, who set sail to try and find Hyperborea, But at, at some point, he got blocked by the ice and had to turn back. But it was taken up in a big way. For example, in the 20th century, there was a, a Russian archaeologist, Alexander Batchenko, who around the 1920s led an expedition to the extreme Northwest of Russia to, especially to an area called the Kola Peninsula, in basically in search of remains of Hyperborea. And he found all sorts of remarkable things like pyramids, the remains of paved roads, labyrinths and things of that sort. And he was in fact convinced that he'd found Hyperborea. And there've been other expeditions since, since since the fall of communism, that there've been further expeditions to that region, and there's a there's a whole sort of cult of hyperborea. There's, uh, for example, a whole school of painting showing fantastic images of hyperborean cities, people being people riding around on sleighs drawn by mammoths and so on. Even even scenes with spaceships landing in a hyperborean environment mm. and things of that sort so it, it's a it's a very interesting phenomenon mm. and then the russians were well, many 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 russians see themselves as the, the true descendants through the true inheritors or true true heirs of the hyperboreans
2: yeah, I've, I've I've actually seen uh, Mr. McIntosh. Some of those images you, you're talking about, are, you know, with the the cities with uh, with the sort oh, yeah. of tame mammoths in it or sort of trundling around and stuff like that, sort mm. of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, mammoths did survive in Siberia, didn't they? I think for, for I think like two thousand years ago there oh, were some Oh, they did. Mammoths, yes. yeah, so, and they and and they're and, and they're famous for finding the ones f- frozen in the you know in the they got whole museums of like frozen preserved mammoth that's
1: right by the words. yeah
0: yeah yeah no it's interesting one thing another point in the book that i found quite interesting which is vaguely linked to what we're just talking about now is um you speak about how in modernity uh the west kind of separated spirituality and the avant-garde and um I, yeah. but russia didn't seem to do that did it and why do you think that is
1: well, it, it's an interesting, interesting question. Um, as, as you say, um, in the West, the avant-garde tends to be secular, mm. um, whereas in Russia, that's not the case. The, Ru- the Russians are a, a deeply spiritual people, but during the communist years, there was a, a kind of enforced secularity, and um so to to be avant-garde was was to be against that secularity to be to be avant-garde was to be religious and spiritual and um so even under communism if if you were a writer for example you tried to find ways to express um spirituality Uh, um, um classic example would be Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was um, a deeply religious man. And uh, so after the fall of communism, writers and artists simply, simply returned to their natural spirituality. And I, I think that's still the case today.
0: Mm. You know, um, I think you were interested in asking about Rasputin.
2: Well, I thought thought we'd get on to the Holy Fool uh, or the the, the archetype. Hmm. I mean, he does. does, Yeah, Rasputin is, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot more to Russia than Rasputin, but um, he's he's a a very common sort of image that people think of. And 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 it's interesting. He does does fall into the, the holy man who wanders around, um, taking his sort of preaching yeah, yeah. from place to place, and also like the holy, the holy fool idea. Uh, I know the Romanovs; they were very, they mm. had before Rasputin. They had another holy fool called, I think he was called something, Peter the Innocent, mm. or some something like that. And uh, and uh, so yeah, he's mm. he's one of those figures yeah. that uh, you know sort of leaps out. Yeah.
1: Well, on, on the subject of on the subject of Rasputin, uh, last week. I was in I was in Berkeley, California. And um, one day I was passing a, a music shop and outside the shop was a big sign saying Rasputin Music. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it depicted it it depicted um, Rasputin Dressed in a kind of hippie costume and uh, playing an electric guitar. Uh, uh, so um, to me, that, that says something about Rasputin's enduring, sort of in, in, enduring appeal. Um, he, he, he was a kind of hippie um, ahead of his time, but he, he was obviously much more than a hippie. He was, um, uh, as, as you say, uh, well, he's, he's an example of this Russian tradition of the Starets, the, the independent holy man, and um, the ind- independent holy man and sage and prophet. And um, he, despite his, despite his uh, notoriety and his sort of wild and profligate life, there's, there's no doubt that he was a genuinely pious person, and that he, that he had genuine gifts of healing. Other, other word, otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to heal the the tsarevich. Um, so I think he I, I, I think he's 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 someone who is um, uh, has has been somewhat unjustly treated
2: yeah he's an intriguing figure he remains an intriguing figure and uh uh when he was um assassinated yeah and they, they they there's a photograph of him of his body isn't there and he's, he's he looks like he's signed making yes, a signing yes. uh, I, don't, I don't know if he's doing it with two fingers or three fingers i, I can't tell but um uh, but also as well just just after when he he was um assassinated they um they built a chapel to him next to the to the river there and, uh, and um yeah. but of course when uh, you know communism swept in soon after that was leveled to the ground but there's a lot you know it, it's intriguing thinking there's an alternative universe where that didn't happen and there's like a shrine there's like a there's like yeah. a, a temple like a shrine to mm. Rasputin, and it'd be interesting to see is it just intriguing yeah. to imagine well what 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 history, what narrative around Rasputin accumulate in that if, if history had changed a lot, that little bit. Yeah. When you know, so mm. speculating away there.
0: Yeah, I found. Um, well, he's, he's he's a very. Yeah. No, go on, continue. Sorry, <laughs> there's a bit of a delay, yeah, he's, so he's it's. A very, um, he's a very. Russian, he's, a,
1: he's a very Russian figure. I think um, it's difficult for people outside Russian russia to understand a figure like that because he does belong to this figure of the starets and the, the sort of eccentric uh, eccentric character like like the holy fool he, he belongs to that whole tradition which is very russian
0: yeah i think you're absolutely right i
1: think you're totally right
0: mm. one um kind of parallel you draw in the book is between rasputin and i think his is alexander Dugin or Dugin. Um, uh, I again, yes. yeah, they do seem to, there does seem to be a parallel, but they do seem to be quite different in other ways. Could you talk about this kind of connection between the two?
1: Well, um, they, they are, they have similarities and dissimilarities. Um, Rasputin was not an intellectual. He came from a, a rather humble background. Um, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't particularly educated um, he was really, really a man of the people, whereas Dugin, Dugin is is very much an intellectual. Um, but he, he has the same, has the similar sort of charisma. Um, to be to be a, a staritz, you you have to have charisma, and Dugin definitely has that. Uh, but he's he's also Provocative. The, the, the Starrett is often is often provocative in in what he says, and Dugin is uh, Dugin again is is provocative. But he's, he he he's very stimulating. Has some some very interesting ideas. Even even if you don't agree with everything he says. So was
0: um, would you say it was respecting a traditionalist in the same way that uh,
1: Dugin or Dugin was. Yeah, I think he was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah.
2: Du, du Ying now is a is a traditionalist, but he, he comes from a far more complex sort of background, is not he? With
1: yeah. you know, in, involvement was, with involvement. Uh, he was
2: originally a kind of hippie, yeah, yeah. yeah. and and um, elements of chaos magic and other things, which still creep in, funny enough. Yeah, are still in his
0: DNA, maybe. Absolutely. I, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was um, particularly interested to see that um, Eisenstein was. Uh, technically an occultist um especially he was very oh, well. uh, yeah it was it a, he, he was a member of a rosicrucian well, this, lodge i believe
1: well th- this was something that surprised me greatly um, when i came across a photograph of him with some other members of the rosicrucian lodge and they're, they're all dressed in the uniform of, the red, Ar- of, the, of the, uh, yeah, the red army this was during the civil war and um, in the first place, I wouldn't have expected him to be to have been a, a member of a Rosicrucian lodge. It's not not something one would associate with Eisenstein. And secondly, that it was the Red Army that he was a member of, uh, because we tend to think of um, well, uh, uh, as I said as I said earlier, communism was was very secular and um, anti anti-spiritual, anti, anti those kinds of things. So um, it, it was surprising that Eisenstein was a member of this lodge. But um, that, that was one of a number of Rosicrucian lodges and, and other similar groups that were active at the time of the revolution and, and even up to the beginning of the Stalinist regime. But, um, when, when Stalin really started to clamp down, these, these organizations were crushed and many of their members died in the gulag. Mm -hmm. So, um, by the, by the end of the Stalinist period, there weren't, wasn't much of that kind of thing going on.
0: Yeah. Um. So, obviously, one character we, we mention a lot on this podcast, uh, he's, it seems that not an episode goes past where we don't mention him, actually, is uh, Alistair Crowley. He's our patron saint. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, obviously, Crowley, oh, yes. Crowley was kind of deeply moved by Russia, wasn't he? Um, and, obviously, uh created two quite fundamental texts whilst he was out there, um, or was at least inspired whilst he was out there. Could you uh, talk to that yeah. at all?
1: yeah um, well Crowley um, at one point he thought of going into the diplomatic corps and he decided uh, I think he decided to learn Russian I think that was one of the reasons why he he went there anyway he was he was deeply impressed by Russia and uh, wrote a very uh, eloquent, Description of Moscow. And he, um, yes, as, as you say, it was it was while he was there that he, he wrote his famous hymn to Pan. Well, today there, there is a crolian movement. And at one point, as I think, as I mentioned in the book, uh, when Dugin was a candidate for the Russian parliament. A concert was held to promote his candidacy, candidacy um, by um, a group led by a musician called Kuryakin. And during, during this meeting, Crowley actually read a passage from, I think it was the Book of the Law, Well, um, as I say, there's, there is now a, a, a Crowleyan movement. It's, it's not very large. I think it's I think it can be numbered in the hundreds rather than the thousands. But um, Crowley's name is is still very much present. I mean, if you if you go into an esoteric bookshop in Moscow or St. Petersburg or one of one of the other cities, you you will find books by Crowley uh, and on Crowley.
0: Yeah, it sounds. It sounds like they've got more books than we have here. You can't can't find any Crowley books in England at the moment. It's typical. <laughs> uh, also, as well, the you got. He uh, no. also
2: wrote the Gnostic Catholic Mass. Yeah, uh, during his time in um, in Russia and um, uh, 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 inspired by the Russian Orthodox Church, and there, yeah. I've 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 seen the Greek Orthodox Mass performed, and it's got similarities. It's got the would call it in England the rude screen the screen that separates the congregation oh, yes. and the elements are consecrated behind that and there's also you know there's I mean I mean I, I I didn't know what I was looking at and <laughs> so forgive my ignorance but you know you have like the priest going into the rude screen going into the screen and then you know consecrating the elements and then he comes out in wearing a completely different sort of costume and so on and and and, and clearly i yeah. uh, didn't be, it incorporated or taking some of those those ritualistic sort of um, mm. dynamics from from
1: it and incorporated them in into the gnostic mass from, well that's from that's very that's very interesting I, I i actually wasn't aware of that
2: yeah well it, during it's, the gnostic uh, mass there's a similar thing of of the, the priest uh, changing his uh, his costume when he becomes like becomes the active priest if you see what i mean the
1: priest that's that, that's, that, like that, that's, that's very fascinating. I, I had no idea that Crowley's Gnostic Mass was influenced by the Orthodox liturgy. Yeah,
2: it's, it's, it's worth comparing in the two. You'll definitely see the parallels. Yeah. It's, it's actually when yeah. you when you read it on the on the cold page, it's it's difficult mm. to visualise what actually is going on. Is if you actually see mm. the Gnostic, you'll you'll, you'll yeah, anyway, I suppose. <laughs> it yeah. yeah you
1: know, well, the the the, ortho, the Orthodox liturgy is extremely powerful I mean I I, I've attended I've attended the liturgy on, on a number of occasions and I find it very moving and as you say one of the characteristics of Orthodox churches is this what they call the iconostasis it's the this screen behind which the Eucharist is consecrated and so it gives the whole thing an element of mystery and concealment which which um creates something very powerful
0: yeah interesting so um well, we haven't really broached it um, but what is the kind of state of paganism in Russia at the moment um obviously it, it seems to it it seems to come in waves in Russia, doesn't it um but it always seems to reemerge mm. even after great um restrictions yeah, yeah. by 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 you know powers of authority um so but i mean obviously yeah. it's not quite the you know but, it's not the stalinist russia we're in right now but it's uh it's it's a a, a a slightly repressed russia so it'd be i'm interested to know like how how the pagan movement is kind of you know how it how it's how hmm. it how it's settled at the moment kind of
1: thing yeah well you, you have to remember that Russia is a huge country uh, incorporating many different nationalities and ethnic groups and and so on. So there there are many different forms of paganism. But basically, there are two levels of paganism. There are the the indigenous pagan traditions, um, which have existed since before Christianity came. of course, very, very different from the forms of paganism that we know in, in the West. There's, um, for example, there are, there are domestic deities, like um, this um, a household spirit that they call the, the domohoi, the domohoi, dome the, the house or home. And um, he's, he's generally generally a sort of benevolent spirit. But he sometimes gets upset if you don't keep the house tidy and so on. And he's he's um, portrayed as a little kind of hairy monkey-like humanoid. And um, he's uh, he's still he's still there. You if you go to mar- markets where folk crafts are being sold, you'll find little statuettes of him, the Doma Boy.
2: Yeah. Um, well, sorry, I was going to. I was going to well, say it's an intriguing, yeah. intriguing. I was really intrigued by the 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 link there I, I, between in, in this part of the world we have, you know, in, in the United Kingdom. I don't know about the rest of Europe, mm-hmm. but you have the idea of the brownie, who's like a kind of uh, like a domestic brownie, yeah. like elf food or whatever. It's very similar. It was intriguing as well that they uh, you have to sort of have a well-ordered house or the the brownie, uh, or in this case, this sort of. Uh, character it becomes sort of uh, agitated and you have to leave out offerings as well. That that that, that was intriguing because the yeah, same yeah. it's the same narrative. I you know it was the same narrative. Reminds me of like the Roman concept of the household gods as well, going back even further to so. yes,
1: yes, yes, But but traditions like that are still are still very strong. And uh, as as you as I say you'll see little images of this Domovoy. Um well, then, going up the scale, as it were, there are nature deities. For example, there's one called Veles, who's sort of the equivalent of Pan in the West. Then there's Perkunas, who's a thunder god, sort of the equivalent of Tor. And then Kupola. Um, the, the god of summer and the harvest and fertility. And, um, yeah, the, the, those are some of them. Well, these, these have survived. These, these pre-Christian deities have survived to some extent and have been revived in recent times. Uh, some of them some of them have merged with with uh, Christian Christian saints for example uh, Coppola, um is um, he's been sort of co-opted by by Christianity so there's, there's a, a midsummer festival um, which dates from before Christianity but it's it's now been renamed Ivan Coppola, John John Coppola, which takes place at, at Midsummer and uh, has become a festival of St. John. But um, there, are, there are many pagans who still celebrate it as a, as a pagan festival. And um, one of the places they celebrate it is a prehistoric site called... Um, uh, um, I forget the name of it now. It's in the it's in the Urals, and it's sort of the equivalent of um, Stonehenge in England. And so th- thousands of people go there midsummer to celebrate this Ivan Kapo- Kapola, um festival. So that that's one example of um, a neo-pagan phenomenon, um, and there are, there are many. Now neo pagan groups there are neo pagan priests who, who perform um, pagan pagan burials marriages rites of passage and so on um, so that's that, that, <clears throat> yeah that, that's that's sort of the, what I can say about paganism.
2: And also, sort of the, in that little pantheon of sort of animistic, sort of creatures, there's 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 a leshy. Is it is it pronounced leshy? I'm I'm going to murder all the Russian language completely in this podcast. But is it the leshy, the hairy the hairy creature that lives in the forest? The wild-
1: oh yes, like the leshy, the leshy, ah, yes, ah, yes, Leche,
2: yeah. It's yeah. kind of what yeah, it, yes. it's like a hairy, wo- it's like um, a wild, like a wood of like a hairy man of the forest? Yes, that, yes, that, yes, that's yes. right. Yes, yeah. yes. And i've seen i've um, I think somewhere in russia they he's represented as like a hairy small hairy creature with like a like a horn a single horn like was like a unicorn is that right yeah. am i, I, did, I <laughs> did i dream the...
0: that
1: yeah.
0: yeah yeah interesting so what about um kind of more like, esoteric groups and things like that in russia like you said that there's a kind of crowley like an o t o kind of movement there but What about kind of other groups like is there you know are other groups represented there as well did they survive the kind of um you know the communist era and like the rosicrucians for example are they still active in russia or oh
1: oh yes um basically all, all the groups that you you would find in the west are active in russia
0: that's interesting
1: for example uh, the, the Theosophy is quite strong. because Madame Blavatsky didn't found theosophy in Russia. She founded it in New York, but it, it very quickly found its way back to Russia. So there is, there is a theosophical movement. There is anthroposophy. There, there is also oh, uh, a whole range of, of sort of New Age movements, Some of which have been imported from the West, but some of which are indigenous to Russia. I mean, for for example, the the Rurik movement founded by the painter Nikolai Rurik and his wife, Helena, who was clairvoyant. And uh, Helena Rurik, in fact, channeled one of the masters of theosophy called Moria, and he transmitted to her a whole teaching which centered around the concept of agony which is the sort of the, the, the it's from the, the the word meaning fire and agni it's co- co- cognate with the russian word ogon and it's similar to the concept of the chi or, or the prana in the in the vedic tradition so they developed this idea this doctrine of Agni yoga so there's quite a strong Agni yoga movement in Russia today and um well those are some some examples of what's going on
2: yeah I was was intrigued by the uh Rorik and the he, he was very much in. Involved with the like Buddhism and the the Buddhist temple in
1: in in Saint
2: Petersburg is that is that right is, is yeah Belgium? Saint Petersburg yeah, yes Saint Petersburg which yeah is,
1: which is has has been 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 restored and is now once again uh, a Buddhist centre.
2: Yeah and the, and 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 his amazing art I mean it's the, there's a serenity to his art you can it just sort of sweeps you up doesn't it it's it's, it's quite. It's extraordinary. I, it is, I, it is, yeah, I was, yeah, I'd it love. It's amazing. Yeah, yes, I've never seen any of his work in real life, and I'm as that that's become a bit of an ambition now. Mm. I want to, I want actually, sort of see that in real life.
1: Well, there's, um, there's there's a heroic museum in New York on the Upper West Side. A wonderful place that I used to go to when I lived in New York, and. Um, <clears throat> So if if you're ever in New York, it's worth going there.
2: I think it's moved building, hasn't it? It had to move building for some obscure reason. I'm not sure why.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. And well, was... at, at one point, at one point, um, Rurik had a rich American patron. I, th- I think he was called Horsch. Horch, and this patron built a, a museum he, he built a, a skyscraper on the upper west side of new york to house rurick's collection and be a kind of rurick center but then he and Rurik had a, a falling out and so that museum was closed down and it moved just a very short distance away to, to a street nearby where,
2: where it's now located? Yeah, and there's uh, well, there was also that intriguing narrative with the meteorite uh, and the, the the wish-granting gem. Or... That comes from sort of the Buddhist idea. Oh yes, idea, the yeah.
1: Chintamani stone. Yes. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. Somehow connected with the Grail, and you know that that's that uh, intriguing mixture of the East and the West there as well. Except sort of those narratives.
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. So he, he he thought this Chintamani stone
2: was was basically going to transform the world. Yeah, yeah. And also and also another character uh, connected with G- Gurdjieff, was Ospensky. He he, he, he was native to yeah. well, he lived in Gurdjieff Russia. Means. Um was influenced by uh, influenced by Levy, wasn't he, as well? uh I, i've i've seen some of his uh it did some illustrations and it looked you could see levy's sort of influence in them um yeah i don't know much about him i mean uh, it, how, how much of the the gurdjieff work is
1: is is, is
2: popular or resonates with the russian people
1: uh, oh yeah oh yes this there's, this there's quite a strong gurdjieff movement still going today
0: yeah, interesting. Well, I think um, it's one of these books where we could just keep dipping into yeah. you know, all sorts of... I mean, it's, it's so laden with information, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I do really yeah. a, appreciate you giving us some of your time. Um, if um, people wanted to find you online, where would they... Or, you know, find your, your work, or where would you point them?
1: Well, I think the easiest thing is if they go to my website... Um, the, the address is www.ozgard.net. that's O Z G A R D net. So it's www.ozgard.net.
0: Well brilliant. Well thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I really appreciate it. Um and uh maybe we'll have you back on at some point to talk about uh uh levi or levy how do you yeah. how, how does i've never known how to I say a
2: uh, left lfs levy but i don't yeah. know if that's right
0: yeah i, I hear levy? Yes, yeah, yeah. Levi, that's what i thought but anyway yeah. maybe we'll um we'll have to have you on and uh uh talk about uh, yeah. uh levy.
2: that would be a, good... a true that would be a real treat mm. that would be that would be something special
0: no, Brilliant! That
1: would be a pleasure.
0: And thank you to everyone who watched today. This has been a bit. We've we've been kind of stuck in this mode uh, because of uh, some some gremlins. So we haven't changed. You know, we're, we're in this sort of two up mode here. So uh, um, normally this will be a bit more dynamic. We'll be you know moving moving uh, frames around. But uh, but anyway, thanks to uh, people that uh, stuck around and watched. Um, we'll see you next week. And uh, thank you again, Christopher. It was uh, it was a real pleasure.
2: Thank you very much.